that pain or that experience of losing Maya will never leave me. It's going to be there until I'm gone, right? But I'm going to make it my creative offering in any way that I can to support families, those I speak to, those I meet every single day that are going through those experiences as well. And I just want to let people know that it's not the end. You know, for me, when it happened, it was like, this is it, take me out. I don't want to see another day. And like I said to my husband, I said, I was like at the edge of a cliff and I was about to just jump off and that would have been it. And what kept me from not jumping off was my children. You know, I looked at them and I said, they need me, right? I felt that I had a purpose that gave me the hope. And also importantly, I had a good support system around me. I'm a person of faith, you know, I prayed about my experience. I felt like I surrendered to the purpose in which I have been called to journey on. And I prayed for the wisdom to be able to do the right thing. And here I am. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to season two of Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. All the stories shared here are from the heart. These are real conversations and may be triggering, so please listen with discretion. Today's episode covers miscarriage and baby loss. This episode was recorded during the spring of 2022. Today's guest is KG Moses, founder and CEO of Maya's Legacy and Goddess Hub CIC. She is an author, podcaster, maternal mental wellbeing consultant, certified coach, and professional grief counselor. She's an advocate for maternal mental wellbeing. KG's journey as a mental health advocate started in 2018. She was a pregnant mother of a baby girl. She was going to name her Maya, but she was devastated when she found out that her Maya was stillborn at 35 weeks. Needless to say, it took some time to find her bearings. After all, coming back from such a great loss would require a massive amount of mental and emotional fortitude. That incident allowed KG to acknowledge the need to shed light on the mental health impacts of a pregnancy loss. It was important to her to empower and support families affected by this very personal tragedy and advocate for the care they need. Thus, Maya's legacy was founded in 2020. Thank you, KG, for joining us on Blue Mondays today. I feel tremendously honoured that you've chosen to share your story with us. Before we start, I just wanted to make a note for listeners. Today's episode is a real life experience of someone who has been through it and come out the other side and is now using their journey to positively help other parents in a similar situation. Because of this, the conversation will cover baby loss and stillbirth. So if this is likely to trigger you, please listen with discretion. We will also signpost you to help and support in the show notes. Thank you. So KG, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I hugely appreciate it. And uh, I have to say you're looking absolutely gorgeous. I'm loving that colour combination of I love a power lipstick. Thank you. How thank are you, you today? I am good, actually. I'm very good. I'm looking forward to this interview. So it's going to be an interesting experience for me. Thank you. Oh, well, it's a very safe space here on Blue Bum Day. So it's a very um, relaxed conversation. You already had a son before yes. you gave birth to Maya. So how old was he and was everything okay with that pregnancy and birth? He was... Um, I would say three years old, going to four. Um, that pregnancy was fairly okay. 
um, apart from the fact that I had a little bit of anxiety because prior to having him, I had had a 12 weeks miscarriage. Oh, and so, so I, yes, I was, I was, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, during that pregnancy, but everything went well until it was time to deliver it. Um, Cause I had a lot of complications, you know, with during the pregnancy. And so I wasn't intended to have a C-section again. It was supposed to be a natural birth, but I just couldn't go through that. Um, my body wasn't, you know, aligned to have that experience. So they had to do an emergency C-section. And having him and seeing him, his face kind of made, I forgot about everything else because I just looked at him and I literally busted out crying because I was so happy and relieved that he was okay. And so, yes, he was about three years old. When, when you finally met your son for the first time, did you feel that sort of rush of, of love? Did you feel sort of a wave of happiness or just relief? I was just relieved. I was relieved that he was okay. I was relieved that he was healthy. I was just relieved to see him. And then, you know, shortly after that, I had to deal with my own kind of health issues because, you know, I've spoken about this before. I had too much epidural. And so I was having difficulty breathing. Oh, wow. Um, I've not even heard of that. So is that is that a thing? Yes. Yeah, I think they give it to I think when they give you too much and it's higher up, it it can affect your breathing when you come out of that of the op. So I was having that that situation happen to me and then they were trying to kind of calm me down and trying to resolve it. Um, At that point, I think I was all kinds of things was going through my mind. I went into a panic state of mind and the doctors were trying to just calm me down and and eventually everything kind of calmed down and I I was okay. But yeah, that was what happened shortly after I gave birth to him. But after that experience and I had him with me, it was just, I was just thankful and just grateful to, to, to have him. That sounds like a very frightening experience for you, though. Yes. Did you find you had ill effects from from dealing with that trauma while you were looking after your son when, when you first took him home? I was very protective. I was very, very protective over him. I was very protective in terms of I didn't really want anybody else to kind of have him outside of my immediate family because I just did not want a situation where I would experience loss again you Mm. know because I had the previous miscarriage it was something that stood the memories and the images of the whole experience that whole birth triggered a lot of emotions it was meant to be a joyous experience and I was happy to have my son there but it was a mixture of of it triggering how I felt um, before and so that overprotectiveness over him making sure he was all right was very very strong. Yeah I can completely understand that and actually um, one of the episodes released is an interview with my mum who had uh, several miscarriages and she was always very overprotective of me and I can totally understand that now sort of Mm. knowing that the loss she went through was your first baby loss acknowledged were you given time and space to grieve not really it was very clinical um, because I've heard about people having miscarriages. When I actually went through the whole experience, number one, I was shocked that this had happened. I was devastated that this had happened. But it was a matter of, you know, this had happened to you. What do you want to do about it? Do you want to have a DC? Or do you want it to happen naturally? 
And at that point, it wasn't registering in my mind. And they just said, okay, think about it. We can schedule a date for you now. I'm like, you don't understand. I have seen a heartbeat, right? And you're now telling me that there's no heartbeat and you're not even allowing me to process this information and saying to me, do you need someone to talk to? Do we have a counsellor to speak yeah. to? It wasn't that. So I just called my husband and he came straight to the hospital. And I said, no, I want another ultrasound. I, I just didn't believe what they said to me. And they said, okay, fine, come the next day. I came the next day and it was the same outcome. And at that point, I decided that, no, I'm not having a DC. I'm going to allow this process to happen naturally. But what I didn't realize was that my body was not going to allow that to happen in one or two days. Yeah. It two weeks. Oh, my goodness. Two weeks. I was at home and I was waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting. And actually, that was quite a dangerous thing because anything could have happened um, to have a, a fetus that's no longer, you know, alive in you. Yeah. And then when the actual experience started, um, I remember I was at home and my husband was with me and my youngest son was with me at that time. And it just happened. And I can't, I can't explain it. I came out, you know, they were standing outside the toilet and I came out and it had happened. And so they had to make sure I was okay. My mom was a little bit, my mom was very worried. I wasn't a little mm. bit, she was very worried. Yeah. Actually. And coming out of that. And then that was like, okay, the natural um, process has happened. Now I have to now face the emotional and the mental, um, the mental experience that I had to experience after that. And I didn't really get any phone call from the hospital after that. I think miscarriages is one of those things that I think the healthcare system just sees that it's, it's another thing, you know, whether it's 12 weeks, whether it's five weeks, you should be able to bounce back. It's either that or they don't have the resources or they've not actually really thought through the mental health impact of yeah. those experiences because whether it's 12 weeks, whether it's five weeks, it's a, it's a child. It's, it's something that you're connected to. It's a hope. You, you imagine the name, you imagine the future, and then that is now cut shut. And it doesn't matter whether it's five weeks or 12 weeks it still matters and Absolutely. I think that it's not something that is being thought through properly hopefully things will change yeah yeah and hopefully we can help be part of that change because I think you're absolutely right because unfortunately the statistics are very high that I believe one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage yes possibly I mean I can't talk on behalf of the medical um service but mm. I can imagine it's very routine for them yes. that that it happens a lot yes. and because of that there must be some sort of desensitization to it but if you are the woman going through that yourself and not just the woman you know it's the birth partner if you're lucky enough to have a partner they also experience the baby loss and I think you know whilst it's not acknowledged for the the actual gestational mother mm. it's even less acknowledged the pain and the grief and the loss for the partners the yes. non-gestational partners yes how did your husband cope with the loss as well he wasn't showing any emotions I think for when I had the miscarriage he wasn't showing emotions the only time that I saw him break down and cry was with my daughter Maya and because we had really gone far into the pregnancies he was you know 
part of the whole process. He was excited, he was happy. You know, we've got two boys, now we're gonna have a girl. And then that happened. And it was just, it was too much for him. And he broke down and he cried. Um, they came to the hospital. He brought the kids to the hospital to see me. And we just had a really intimate um, time. My eldest son, he's very sensitive and he, he was really attached to this pregnancy and he was excited to have a sister. And he just cried and he was really upset about it. And so he now he doesn't really want to talk about it. He would just mm. say, Mommy, I don't really want to speak about it. Can we not talk about it, please? Um, and, and, and that is the impact that it has on the family as a whole. It's not just the experience of the mother. It affects every single one. And are we checking that? Yeah. Um, um, but one of the things that I did was I told the school, I said, this is what has happened. And could we just, just look out for him um, just to make sure that he's okay. And they were able to kind of do that for us. Yeah, because as, as you say, if you have young children, I mean, obviously, depending on their age, mm-hmm. there's only so much that they can sort of take in because it is a nebulous concept before you have the child they see you know mummy's tummy getting bigger and they might talk about it but they are part of that and you know for them nine months is a really long time you know it's Mm. a really long time to young children so it's been part of their everyday experience as well Mm. so you had your your very first pregnancy loss Mm. which ended very sadly in miscarriage you Mm. had your lovely baby boy Mm. and then you went on to have another son successfully so are you happy to talk about your experience of your pregnancy with Maya and and losing Maya because I'm I'm very conscious it's very personal and I don't want you to go deep into anything that you're not feeling happy to talk about or comfortable to talk about today yeah I can talk about it that experience for me it had, there was different aspect of the pregnancy that was very challenging. Um, yeah. Number one, she had a diagnosis of Edwardian syndrome yeah. um, at 22 weeks, and she wasn't growing very well. She had complications even whilst I was still pregnant with her. So because of that, I was sent to a specialist hospital, and I had consultants that were um, monitoring the growth and everything else and I will go into a room and I could have about six consultants in there and they were just looking and measuring and talking within themselves and then I was just lying down there not understanding what had happened and they would kind of brief me but it was always a negative report. Wow were you on your own or did you have your husband with you? Some appointments I was on my own and some appointments I went with my husband because the hospital that I had to go to was like an hour away from home because it was a specialist hospital. And so sometimes when he's at work and I have a hospital appointment, he can't make it. And some appointments he made it. I usually will go by myself. And I remember a point where I was beginning to have anxiety to go Every time I had an appointment, I had an anxiety feeling. I just didn't want to go. I was so scared because I just didn't want to hear another negative news. But what kept me going was because when I went into those appointments, I saw a heartbeat and I was hopeful that, yes, she's hanging on. And so I'm going to fight for her. You know, I'm going to continue to fight for her. But in that experience, I had my own health complications. I ended up in hospital with a 22 sugar level and the normal was seven. Oh, my goodness. I had, I had 22. Um, I had a headache that would not go away. And I just thought this was not normal. So at five o'clock in the morning when everyone was sleeping, I got into the car. I just listened to my body. I said, no, this is not right. I got into the car. 
and I went straight to the hospital. I said to my husband, don't worry, you stay with the kids. I'll just drive myself. Even despite the headache? My gosh. Yeah. I walked in and as soon as I walked in, they said, you are not going home. We are keeping you. They kept me for a week. I had drips. I had a C-scan, CT scan. I had the whole thing because they said you could have had a stroke. Oh, my goodness. That's how... That's how serious it was. And was that related to the Edwardian syndrome? Yeah, it was related to that because my body was reacting to the whole experience that it was going through. And, you know, and I, I remember the consultant said to me at my last ultrasound before my C-section, she said to me, look, Think about yourself. She said, I'm not letting you go home. You are not going home. You are staying in the hospital. And I want you to think about yourself. Think about your other kids. That's what she said to me. She looked at me right in the eye. And I knew at that point, she was just saying, you know what? Whatever will happen with this pregnancy will happen with this pregnancy. But you want to be alive Mm. to be able to look after other children. And so she did, she said, no, you're not going home. And I'm grateful that she, she did that um, because then I was able to kind of calm myself down and then really seriously think about it. And so, yeah, I, I, I stayed in the hospital and then I was released and, and I went home. And at that point, at that last appointment I remember my husband and I sat down and he was tired he was just really physically exhausted mentally exhausted at that point he's like he gave up and he was like you know what whatever happens happens that was what he said and so when we left the hospital part of me said you know what whatever happens happens so I went home and a couple of days after I wasn't really feeling a lot of movement. And and a part of me knew something had happened. And so I called the hospital. I had my C-section the week after. I called the hospital on the Sunday and I said, I'm coming in. And I said, well, you're not scheduled in today. You're scheduled in next week. I said, I just needed to check her. I just needed to monitor her. So I I was walking through the hospital. What happened was that there was two couples standing outside. And there was a guy who had like a leather jacket. I will never forget this. And when he turned around, his T-shirt was written tragedy. I'm a very kind of person who picks things up. And I saw that and it stood in my mind and I walked into the hospital and they checked and they did everything. And they just said, you know, the consultant came in and said, I'm really sorry but there's no heartbeat. And because she was lying across, they will have to do a C-section for me again. And I think I broke down because I'm gonna go through this major operation and I'm not going to have a child at the end of it. And, you know, my husband was crying. I was then taken to another room and the registrar came in, lovely lady. And she said, I'm sorry that this had happened. And she looked at me and my family was there and she said to me, and I think this was a way that I really appreciated what she did. She said, we will schedule it for tomorrow morning, but do you want to stay in the hospital or you want to go home with your family? And I said to her, I'm going to go home with my family. And she said, all right, then you can. So she allowed me to do that. And I'm really grateful for that. I went home, I had my family around me. I had to gather my thoughts together to be able to, you know, prepare myself for the next day. And I was very shaking. I was really, really shaking. I couldn't control the shaking when it was time for me to go to the theatre. Because I said, you know, at the part, back of my mind, I was saying, I, I want to wake up. I don't want anything to happen to me during this operation. So I said to the anesthetist, I said to him, please, can you put me to sleep? And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. 
And I was just begging him, I said, please put me to sleep. And I want to be asleep when you do this. And then he, he walked out and he came back in and said, all right, then I'll put you to sleep. And I, I was grateful that he did that. Um, and I woke up and the whole experience happened. I did not want to see her. I really did not want to see her. And I remember the bereavement nurse said to me, she said, you know, we've dressed her up. She looks beautiful. She looks lovely. Are you sure you don't want to see her? I said, oh, can I see a picture? What does her hand look like? I was just asking a question, but I did not want to see her because when I got the diagnosis, I had gone on the internet and I had looked at children who had Edwardian syndrome. And this is the first time I'm talking about it. I did not want to remember my daughter with any physical abnormalities. I did not want to do that because I saw a lot of pictures and a lot of families and, and I did not want to do that. And I just said, no, I did not want to see her. And she said, okay. And then she let it go. And I had a discussion with my husband and he said, you know, if you don't, or is this something that you'll be able to live with? Yeah. And I thought about it and I said, all right, then bring her in. So they dressed her up, brought her in, and we had a chaplain there. He sat with us and he prayed, did a little blessing. I looked at her, said my goodbyes. And I, and they took her away. And recently, I was on Instagram and there's a page where there's a, a lady who has a page dedicated to children who had Edwardian syndrome yeah. who are still living and still alive. And I came across that page and I followed her and I saw the children and I saw the families that having to look after the children and it triggered me. Yeah. It triggered me. And I just, I thought, okay, I don't want to see the notification of this feed coming up on my, my page. Um, but then I thought, what was it that triggered me? What was, what was it that triggered me? And I think it, it brought me back to that experience of me not wanting to see my daughter. Yeah. You know, it brought me back there. And I knew that that was something I needed to kind of work on, something that I needed to, to um, really deal with um and so yeah it's been that experience and I just couldn't I can't I can't put it into words you know I went into a Facebook group with women who had had five losses over and over again and they would talk about their experience and I just even couldn't stay in those groups because it was just a little bit too much. But I can't imagine what families go through on a daily basis. Yeah. How long ago was this when you lost Maya? Um, I lost Maya in 2018. Yeah. September the 24th, 2018. So it's still, you know, relatively recent. Yeah, relatively recent. And I think a lot of people don't, they ask me questions like, that's very recent and that's very, you know, very quick to have a, a charity. Now, what was the why? And my why is this, is that, I wanted to move away from the whole situation of pregnancy loss. I took a career break. I didn't want to have nothing to do with it. But I, you know, I had, I had a woman call me from work out of the blues. I don't really talk to her that much. But she called me out. She said, oh, I heard what happened to you. But she said the same happened to her. And she was, she, she was upset about it mm. and I said you know if you want to talk about it you can speak to me about it and I was going into different groups and listening to what women were saying and the experiences and I said you know what I can actually be part of a solution 
some of the issues that these women went through. And so how can I do that? So I applied to start this charity and the application went through with the charity commissions of that. Oh, great, what do I do now? You know, and it's taken me a whole year to be really trying to understand what direction I want to take my legacy towards, what's the direction. And so we come and we've understood that we want to be able to spread the word, to raise awareness. That's why I'm here on the podcast to talk about it, to raise awareness, to give people the courage and the confidence to speak out. You know, when you look at the Ockenden report, it's very clear that these women were not listened to, these families were not listened to. And so we want to equip families to be able to speak out and then we want to be able to take action and support organizations that are already doing this, like Sands, like Tommy's, like many other organizations that have been in this space for over 40 years. We want to be able to support their campaign to be able to do the work together because ultimately it's not about me as KG, it's not about me. It's about the lives that are going to be affected positively out of this whole thing. And you know what? If it means that Maya's legacy is only for 10 years and it's done what it needs to do, that's fine. You know? Yeah. Well, it's, I'm just <laughs> I'm just so blown away by your story and how quickly you've moved into channeling your grief in a very very positive way do you think in a way it's also helping you process what happened are you finding the process cathartic having this this focus yeah I think the process is quite therapeutic for me as well it's, it's actually helping my healing process and my healing I, I, I saw a quote on Brené Brown's Instagram page the other day and it's by Susan Kane and she says whatever pain you can't get rid of make it your creative offering wow yeah right? yeah make it your creative offering and that's what I'm doing that pain or that experience of losing Maya will never leave me it's going to be there until I'm gone right? But I'm going to make it my creative offering in any way that I can to support families, those I speak to, those I meet every single day that are going through those experiences as well. And I just want to let people know that it's not the end. You know, for me, when it happened, it was like, this is it, take me out. I don't want to see another day. And like I said to my husband, I said I was like at the edge of a cliff and I was about to just jump off and that would have been it. And what kept me from not jumping off was my children. You know, I looked at them and I said, they need me, right? It was the fact that I felt that I had a purpose that gave me the hope. And also, importantly, I had a good support system around me. You know, my husband was there, my mom, very strong um, fixture in my life. She's always been there. And I had friends that supported me in the experience. So it kind of helped me to continue. And I have, I'm a person of faith, you know, I prayed about my experience. I felt like I surrendered to the purpose in which I have been called to journey on. And I prayed for the wisdom to be able to do the right thing. And here I am. You know, so grateful that, that you are. Do you think apart from your family and your friends, did you have much support from the health service in terms of like bereavement counselling or follow-ups? 
not really and, and that was something that I was quite surprised about because I was given a box and then in the box you have all this information and there's the details of sands in there as well so you can call them if you wanted to yeah and I think it gave me some details about local counseling um organization around that I can I can call but I just felt it, there was a disconnect. It was now, you're now back in the community. Good luck. If you called them, nobody's there to find out whether you did or not. There was no follow-up or anything like that. And I think that that is quite very, when you're vulnerable, right, at that point. And it was good that I had people checking up on me, but if I didn't have anyone checking up on me, I can have easily gone into like a deep, deep state of being, and it could it could go anyways. And I think they need to the health sector needs to have something in between. And I, even I said it, you know, um, Sands were doing um, like an interview and just asking black and Asian. A minority women that experience pregnancy loss and they wanted to know what can be implemented and incorporated in training for health professionals and I said they need to have on-ground counsellors yeah yeah in the hospital not nurses professional counsellors right stand by and they can do it because you have people who want to volunteer. Some people will say, you know what? I will volunteer three hours a week to come into hospital as a counsellor to support anyone that's gone through this experience. Yeah. And I think we need to really look into that. And also, they shouldn't put women in wards where other women are having kids. I was in the middle. There was a, a lady who just had a baby. I could hear the baby crying on one end of the oh my goodness because they had a room that you could go into that room is not vacant you have to stay on the ward and so when your family is gone and you're left in the middle of the night I couldn't sleep I just sit down like this crying in tears but I can hear someone just giving birth and I think that that needs to be looked at also but I definitely believe that there, there needs to be a link between when that has happened and when, when you go home, there has to be that, that follow-up. I think that will help a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it is very, very tough when health and medical services are so stretched. And as you're saying, yes. if we can sort of get together like volunteers, then it's not an economic burden. Mm. And it's very difficult when obviously hospital beds are at a premium and I you know I don't want to bash the NHS because they do an incredible job but I can see on a practical level that they might need to return women who have literally just suffered the loss of their baby Mm. but the insensitivity of putting them back on the the ward I mean I remember Mm. my mum talking about Mm. somebody who'd lost their baby being put back in the ward with them and she Mm. just thought that it was the most Mm. the cruelest thing ever and you know it isn't just the impact on the mum as you say it's the whole family if you want to talk about the economic burden on society going forward you know I mean the humanitarian cost is absolutely huge but if the people that Mm. make policy change see it from an economic Mm. perspective you know there's going to be ramifications Mm. for families that are affected like this and may suffer very badly with perinatal mental health because of the loss and the lack of support so I think everything you're suggesting which is like early support Mm. and meaningful support Mm. is is really incredibly important one thing I know when we we talked initially as well you were talking about in your culture there's Mm. a, a feeling of well you're still young you can have other children move mm. on mm. is that something that you think mm. is is changing now or is it still seen in Nigerian culture that you can sort of bounce back and carry on yeah I think it it's multifaceted 
the many factors that contribute to that. It's generational. You should be strong, you're a strong woman, you can still have other children. This is not something we talk about, you know, just deal with it, move on. And that moving on is more to do with their own comfortability rather than you. It's more like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Let's just, let's, let's not have talk about this anymore. The child is gone, you know, what else can you do? You can't bring the child back. And what that does is it creates a culture of secrecy. So people will not openly talk about what they're going through in terms of their mental health. So they would appear okay, they would smile, show up in spaces that they're fine, but they're not fine. It's happening gradually, slowly, but it's very slow. We're not creating spaces for people to be able to speak about these things even in the religious organizations. And, you know, I'm a person of faith and this is not about bashing religious organizations because they do tremendous work within the community. It's about them understanding that there are women that will go through these experiences and we need to start creating safe spaces for them to have the support, particularly they spend most of their time within the organization you know, they go to church or they go to mosque or whatever the situation may be. And so if we are able to create those spaces for them, that would really begin to help. And take away the element of shame. There's nothing to be afraid of. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just the way things had happened. And so there's a lot of conversation to be had. There's a lot of generational ideology that's been passed on along the line that people need to begin to change the narrative I would say and I hope I am able to be part of that conversation to begin to change the narrative so that women can stand in their truth and speak their truth and not be afraid of being judged for speaking their truth. Absolutely and I think you know you can absolutely be a strong woman but still grieve for the loss of your child. You know, it's not a reflection on strength. It's something that you need to process. It's an incredibly traumatic event. How did your children react? Because I know you were saying that that one of your children doesn't like to talk about it anymore. Do you still like to talk about Maya? Because, you know, she was such a huge part of your life. Mm. I talk about Maya through Maya's legacy. Yeah. I don't talk about Maya through the actual experience. I don't talk Maya through the pain that I experienced. So they know about Maya's legacy. There's always see me doing something yeah. or the other. <laughs> like my interview this morning is like, oh, you're having an interview. Like my youngest one, he is seven. He said, oh, Maya, mommy, remember when you were in hospital and daddy was crying and you were crying. Why were you crying again? Is it because Maya, where is she? She's in a box, you know. Yeah. Those kind of questions still come up because obviously we have to plan the funeral and, you know, we, did the whole thing and took her to, you know, lay her down. And they were there, it was just myself, my husband, and my two boys. And so I've got pictures and things like that to kind of have that memory. But I speak about her through Maya's legacy. Um, is that conscious? I'm not sure. I think it's more about where I'm at. Um, and where Matt is, Maya's legacy is the legacy that Maya's leaving. And I'm going to talk about that. There are days, though, on my own where I, I feel sad. I feel that emotions come up again. I feel a sense of grief, strong, still there that I, I find myself sometimes in the house when I'm on my own, I, I, I do have the, that moment of crying and, and having that emotional moment. Um, 
but in speaking to them, I speak through Maya's legacy. It's yeah. like focusing on, on the future and looking forward and about yes. making positive change. With yes. regards to sort of how people responded to you, because I think one thing that's very common is people don't know what to say or don't know what to do because obviously whatever they do or whatever they say is not going to be helpful when you've lost a child. But have you got any advice for if somebody has a friend who's going through a similar thing or a loved one? What is helpful? What is not helpful? What could be potentially damaging? Is there anything you could offer? Yeah, um, many things. I'll, I'll share my own experience. Majority of the time, I wanted to be left alone. I did not want people phoning me up every single minute and saying, how are you today? And then the next day, I just didn't want that. And my friends were sensitive enough to, to understand that. And so there was a balance. And so for me, my advice is you've got to understand the person in front of you, right? And kind of navigate how you deal with them based on who they are. And so if you find that your friend is the sort of person that's talking about it, they want to talk about it all the time, or your family member, this person, every single thing they said is about this experience, and you're finding it that is overwhelming for you, don't disconnect yourself from them because that's another sense of loss. That's another sense of abandonment. What I would offer you to do is just be honest and say, you know what? I want to be able to support you, but I don't think I can support you in the way in which you need the support right now. What I want to do with you is work together so we can find the right support for you. So you look for maybe a counselor or whatever, you know, you work something out so that they can still have the support and they don't have that sense of abandonment. What I find is when people feel like you're talking too much about it, they will remove themselves and all of a sudden you call them and they're not picking up their phone anymore. And that's another loss, isn't it? That's another sense of abandonment. So I will offer that. I will also offer the fact that sometimes when they're silent, in the room, it's okay. You don't need to fill in every silent with another conversation. Silent for me was therapy. You know, my friends will come down, they'll bring food, and we can all just sit down, not really saying much. The TV's on, and then we just sit down like that. And I was okay with that. And so it's it's really about knowing the person and just being kind of sensitive to what is going on. And maybe you can ask them, say, what do you need from me right now? What do you need me to do for you right now? If you want me to help you with domestic stuff and that's all you need, that's fine. And I'm able to do that, then I can offer that to you. Or if you just want me to just kind of check up on you once a day in the morning and that's all you need, that's fine. But it's about them. But in that, you have to be conscious of how you're responding to what is going on. Be aware of it. I think self-awareness is important. So those are the things that I could offer. I think that's incredibly helpful. So the big takeout there is being sensitive yeah. and sort of, yeah, asking, asking yeah. what they need and actively listening. Yes. And as you say, not being there to sort of throw advice at them or constantly fill the space but just mm. letting them be, but know that they're not alone. Yes. I think so many people feel awkward and don't know whether to acknowledge the loss and say, I'm so sorry you lost your baby or whether not to talk about it. I mm. guess it depends on the individual as to yes. whether they want to openly talk about it or not. Another thing that I know you're very keen on talking about is, is the need for advocacy. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the need for advocacy, the need to speak up. I can identify every single moment that I, I should have spoken up and I didn't because I didn't feel that my voice mattered at the moment. I didn't understand 
like for instance, when I got the diagnosis of my daughter, when I tested positive for it, I was at home, I was lying down in bed and I got a phone call from the hospital and the nurse said, oh, the result has come through and you tested positive. I'm like, positive for what? T18. I was like, oh, okay. And we're going to book an appointment for you to see a consultant. I put down the phone and Google was my friend. I went on Google to begin to find out what this was. And you know, when you go online, you, you can see different things and it could be positive, it could be negative. And my anxiety level was already 100 before I even had the appointment. But at that point, I think I could have said, okay, can you explain to me what this is? What does it mean? Yeah, I wanna have a proper conversation about this um, before I go into my next appointment so I know what the reasons why I'm going into it. I just took that and I left it. I remember when I was in the hospital, I had the C-section, I couldn't walk, my feet were swollen. I was laying down and I had bloody bed sheets. And I said to the nurse, it was late in the night. I said, please, can you help me change me because I can't get up. And she said, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. She didn't do it all throughout the oh, night. Goodness. And she only came to change it until the morning shift was about to come in. And that's what it did. I could have kind of said, no, can I speak to somebody else, please? Can I speak to the matron or whatever? Who's the registrar on duty? I would talk to someone. Yeah. So for me, I think that, you know, there's a level of just take it as it is. They know what they're talking about. You don't. So yes, you must listen. But at the same time, your voice matters in the conversation. And you have to be able to have the skills to be able to speak up and say what you don't understand. Ask them for clarification. Yeah. And if you can't do it yourself, get somebody there who can support you. So you're very clear and you can make an informed decision. You know, yes, yeah, based on the information that is right in front of you. So, advocacy is very important, self advocacy is very important, and more important as well is advocacy for people that cannot speak for themselves. You know, advocacy for you know, in terms of policy, lobbying your MPs to make sure that they're supporting the right policies, and that's why SANS and Tommy's and those organizations I really support and I'm grateful for them because they are pushing. They're pushing, they're pushing the right agenda forward so that we can begin to look at these conversations and changing policies that would affect women, that would affect families in a positive way. So, yeah, for me, advocacy is important. And that's the direction I want to go. Speak up, speak out. Your voice matters. Continue to speak. And if you're not being listened to, find who will listen to you. Absolutely. My goodness, this resonates so much just just on any experience of motherhood, I think, and especially around the birthing process is Mm. is having a voice. It really does matter. And if you're not able to speak up for yourself, because, you know, when you're giving birth, you're at your most vulnerable anyway. And it is so easy to feel, well, you know, they know what they're doing and I don't so I'm gonna just go with it but you can feel like a passenger in your own birthing and so I think everything that you've said is is so important and also that thing about you know Google is not your friend when it comes to anything health related because I know when I was a new mum just googling anything you know even just about breastfeeding it's terrifying. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Everything leads to the worst possible things. If you're looking at that at four o'clock in the morning, sleep deprived, you know, it's really terrifying. So yeah, it's really important not to <laughs> rely on the internet because <laughs> it can be really scary, especially on forums. Forums are the worst. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Some forums can be very um, yes. comforting, but a lot can be very judgmental. Um, and I think, yeah, it's so important to feel your voices heard. I've spoken to incredible women like Sandra Igwe and Chrissy Brown of Motivational Mums and talking to them about their experiences, black women, and how if you do advocate for yourself, you are often then seen as the aggressive black mum or yeah. that sort of having any sort of assertiveness or confidence Mm. is you're Mm. then met with you know let's face it racist stereotypes yes yes 
because I think I think everyone needs to deal with their own bias. We have in all professions. I feel like sometimes there's what it takes to be a human being, right? Is now separated when you're now a black person. Is like we have to tick the box and then accept that you're human. And we have to tick the box and accept that you have feelings. Until we do that, what you're saying, it's not important. Do you actually feel pain? Remember they used to test, you know, medical, um, I can't remember what it is. I don't want to quote it, but I know that black women were used in the medical field. They were operated on without no anesthetics. What? Back in the day. Yes. And that's because there was a notion and there was a uh, idea that we don't feel pain. Right. So when you think about generations of thinking along those lines, when it comes to healthcare, it's more like you can handle it. What are you talking about? And that's why advocacy is important because we have to re-educate people. We have to re-educate people and people have to begin to understand that just because I'm black, I'm not the same as the next black woman right next to me. Right. My pain threshold is different from hers, right? I'm human, right? Listen to me. And so I believe, speak your mind respectfully, right? And sometimes you've got to shout. <laughs> sometimes you've got to say, and then if you're not being listened to, sometimes you, you do have to shout at the top of your voice, not in, in, to be violent or anything like that, but you've got to show that you need to listen to me. Or we will have situations where, you know, we're excluded from, you know, researches that's been done. We're excluded from things that are important that could actually benefit the community of women. We'll be excluded from that if we don't begin to speak up about these things and show up in rooms. And that's what I want to do. I want to show up in rooms where this conversation has been had and bring a perspective as a woman, as a mom, and as a black woman. And so we begin to kind of change the narratives. Yeah, oh my God. But but it's so dehumanizing. Yeah. It's institutional, you know, it's been happening for such a long time. And yeah, I mean, I had no idea until I started researching into about the statistics, you know, mm. how black women are and more likely to, I think it's four times more likely to die in childbirth, mm. more likely to suffer from perinatal mental health issues, yep. but at least likely to be listened to or offered yep. support. And that has yep. to change. That has to change. It has to change and it will change. Well, it, it certainly will if you have anything to do with it, because <laughs> you, you are a, a powerhouse, KG, <laughs> and you're already getting started, you know. You will change. And what people don't understand about this is it benefits everyone. Yeah, yeah. It benefits everyone. If you have a healthy mother who, you know, when I say healthy, I mean, she is being looked after. She is well, you know, she's able to function in the way that she's meant to function. It has an impact on the children. It has an impact on community. Definitely. And we, we need to look at it on a holistic level that it impacts every single thing we're doing. And so, yes, it will change. Amazing. <laughs> what, what a positive note to finish on. So yeah. how do people get hold of you if they want to speak to you or if they need to access the services that Myers Legacy provides? So on our website. And that is Maya with an H. Yeah, with an H, yes, Maya with an H. So you can um, you can contact me, then we can have a conversation. If you're interested in self-advocacy, go on our website. Um, so we will be covering different topics within this training. So we'll be looking at what is self-advocacy, why is it useful, why do I need to self-advocate, we look at being assertive. What does assertiveness mean? We look at self-compassion, self-awareness. So you can go on our website, click on it. 
It's online, via Zoom, intimate conversations about self-advocacy looking at ways that you can use it in different areas of your life yeah not not just in motherhood but yeah it's life skills isn't it and one thing I wanted to say you know this experience has changed me in ways look I would not be sitting here with you having this interview before the experience because I'm an introvert naturally I like my own little space you know just sitting on Netflix and not really doing much but this experience in ways I can't explain has opened me up you know it's given me a new hope and a way of approaching life which is fulfilling yeah it's given you a voice it's given me a voice and you're using it so wisely. So uh, thank you so much. What a brilliant way to end. KG, you've been such a fabulous guest and I've been practically crying <laughs> throughout the entire thing because, yeah, I'm so sorry you went through that experience, but I, I'm so pleased that you're using it and taking it forward in such a positive way. So thank you so much for, for sharing it with thank us. Thank you so much for this platform. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Blue Mum Days, please like and subscribe. It really does make the difference in helping other people find it. And that means helping more parents. Thank you.